0: Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. So let's pray once more before we dive into God's word together. Uh, Lord Jesus, what a unique privilege. What a unique time to be in as your church. And while the world will project to us needs upon needs and saviors upon saviors, uh, it is the job of the Christian to discern the truth from the lie, to discern what is real from what is farce, farce, and to discern what is of true value and what is a trifle. And so we thank you that your word speaks to us to help us see these things so that we might not just know, but that we might act differently. And so as we submit ourselves to your word this morning, we submit ourselves to the greatest power there is in the world, to the hand of a loving God, able to guide, direct, to stir to repentance and to produce worship. We pray this in your name. Amen. I want to open today. Uh, not by reading in First Peter, which is where we'll be, but actually by reading Psalm 46. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open there. If you don't have a Bible, grab one in the back, spray it with hand sanitizer, and take it home with you. Um, but this is Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waves roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, that is the city. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. So here we have in this psalm a picture of the world teetering, nations raging, Sees foaming from the tumult that is in it. But in the middle of all this chaos, there's a river. A river which makes the people of God, living in the city of God, glad. A river that sounds an awful like, like another river, which will be talked about in the book of Revelation by the Apostle John. At the end of all things, when he's describing the throne room of the Almighty, he says this, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's perhaps in God's wonderful inspiration of Psalm 46 that the psalmist was looking forward to that divine and future river where despite the chaos which once typified the waters here it is peaceful here it is consistent here and with this God can it be said be still and know that I am God I will be exalted among the nations I will be exalted over all the earth And since we gathered last week, our world has changed. While mountains may not have been moved into the sea, we have certainly begun to slouch. There's anxiety raging. There's roaring seas. COVID-19 is now in Missoula. There's fear in our homes and in our workplaces. Our store shelves are emptied. And there's all sorts of pressure on the internet. People are telling you how to feel. We can't escape it. There are those who preach fear. They want us to feel panic. And there are those who preach farce and they want you to feel shame. And as soon as we give in to one of them, the other side comes back. And our hearts don't know what to feel. We don't know what to do. But in the midst of that, there's a God who says, be still and know that I am God. Here as we gather in what might be our last gathering for a while with those who are here, we're reminded that God's word always brings peace to our circumstances. God, the wonderful, reigning, exalting, ruling, saving, river-producing God, tells us how to feel in light of what he has done to deliver us. And this is so important. This information of deliverance is so important that it shapes everything else. This week, you will hear more from the church as we uh, get information from city officials and government officials as to what it looks like to gather, what it looks like for us moving forward. Uh, We want you to know If you are a healthy member, what it looks like for you to help members of our church who are maybe sick or compromised or limited in themselves. That is our job to not selfishly take in panic, but to give in love. And so we want you to participate in that. Uh, There's a lot of things we're going to communicate. There's a newsletter. Uh, on our website. If you go to our website, it's on the bottom of every page. That is going to be the most efficient way for you to know what's going on these next few weeks. If you have questions, you could call the church office. And we're going to give lots of information, lots of human wisdom that we need to to care for each other and to stay um, encouraged as the body when we look a little different, perhaps, during this season. But I want you to hear this You could hear all of our practical messages, but if you miss what we gather to talk about today, you miss everything. You miss the very hope of what we have. We are, as we'll see, we are pressured in our own heart to think practically, but God wants us to think theologically and there's nothing more practical than that. And this is, Great because last week we started a series in 1 Peter and it was maybe us starting that that brought on the early apocalypse where God is meeting our external context with the substance of what we're looking at today. And in 1 Peter, last week he opened up writing to the churches and he called them elect exiles. Elect exiles. They are exiles because we know that either in confrontation with people who are opposed to God or in confrontation with a physical world which we see today more than even last Sunday is broken, we are presented with how inhospitable this world is. We are aliens in a foreign land. We are strangers in a different culture. This is not the world God made us to live in. Sin has broken it. It has broken creation of what is inanimate, and it has broken the hearts of those who are made in God's image. And to be in exile is to not be surprised, Peter says later on in his letter, when we experience the dissonance of that. And yet, there's good news. You're an elect exile. You are loved by Jesus Christ. To be a believer, to respond in faith, is to realize how much Jesus loves you. And Peter uses this title because he's writing to five churches scattered across what is now uh, Turkey, To churches who are confused at the increasing world uh, that is changing before them. The increasing persecution that's beginning to get hotter and hotter under their feet. And they don't know what it looks like. They just fear what it could be. And Peter speaks to our anxieties. That's what God's word does. It speaks to our anxieties. And it answers the question of what does this mean? Who am I? And what in the world is going on with The same thing the psalmist pointed to, the plan of God. I will be exalted in all the earth. I will be exalted over all the nations. Our comfort in times of confusion, fear, chaos, suffering comes from seeing the plan of God. And that might seem so distant from you. Why is talking about God helpful to me? Well, it's helpful because his plan includes his plan of salvation, which means this that when you are in elect exile, you realize that God has never abandoned you. That everything is part of God's plan to redeem his people and receive glory from the nations. God is always with us. And if we only know how to look at what is inside our own heart and what is outside in our world, and we don't consider the plan of God, we will always feel terrified because everything else changes, but God's plan does not God has made a business in this book of bringing his people through the wilderness. It is the plan for his glory which gives us hope and causes us to be compelled by something far greater than the circumstances in this world. Growing up, I watched reruns of the TV show MASH. I don't know how many of you have seen that. But it followed this uh, mobile army hospital In Korea during the Korean War and one of the main characters was Maxwell Q Klinger and Klinger if you've watched Mash at all you know he's from where's he from Toledo he loves Toledo Ohio he is always talking about Toledo they could be the most gorgeous day in Korea and he would bemoan it because it's not Toledo Ohio And he was so homesick to go back to Toledo that he would do all sorts of crazy antics in just about every episode to get released or discharged from the military so that at long last he could finally go back to his beloved hometown. But remarkably, and beautifully, from a screenwriting perspective, at the end of the show, Klinger falls in love with a young Korean woman named Soon Lee, a woman he's going to go on to marry. And the America's withdrawing their troops from the war and they're all about to go get on a helicopter but soon Lee says she can't leave Korea. She has to find her family. And Klinger doesn't know what to do. Everybody's going home. He gets Toledo. And so he goes to the ever-wise Colonel Potter. He says, what do I do? And Colonel Potter says this, when you're in love, you're always in trouble. All you can do is either stop loving them or love them a whole lot more. And to everyone's surprise, Klinger stays in Korea and marries Lee. Why? Did Toledo become less beautiful? Did Korea become less of a mess? No, what happened was he was captivated by a love that compelled him. When we are faced with trials and sufferings and confusion and pressure as a Christian, there are two options. To either stop loving Jesus or to love him a whole lot more. And this is the message that Peter has for us today in God's providence This is where God has brought us. He wants us to see how wonderfully compelling Jesus is, to give our whole life for him, that you will be tempted to find your own Toledo, which at its best is still just Toledo. Or you can have the immense joy of giving your life to Jesus and spending eternity with him. And in that moment when you see Jesus as Klinger saw soon Lee. Your actions will follow. You'll know what to do because it'll be worth it. For Klinger, a life with Soon Lee made Korea worth it. And for a Christian, it's the promise of a glorious eternity with Jesus that makes the trials of this life worth it. And so our big picture today, what we're going to see together is that Jesus gives us hope in life's hard times. Jesus gives us hope in life's hard times. And we're going to look at four things inside of that. Peter's going to call us to consider three aspects of the gospel. He wants us to see the nature of the gospel, the effect of the gospel, and the reward of the gospel. And then lastly, as a point of application, he's going to call us, he's going to call Christians in the church to joyfully endure. So Marshall already read this passage for us, but I'm going to read it for us once more. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, that is, his resurrection from the dead. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So here Peter is writing to a church that is scared, anxious, and nervous. The spiritual shelves of their hearts. Costco is becoming increasingly bare. And what does Peter open his letter with? He begins to praise God. You see, when we are fearful, when we are nervous, when we are anxious in fighting sin or in living out the Christian life, we are so prone to the five steps that get us through the process. We want the practical, we want the pragmatic. When we are suffering, give me a checklist so that I might do it and be done with it. But here Peter starts not by saying to get out of this situation, believe this, do this, say this, go here. He begins by saying, blessed be the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. This might seem really simple that the Bible leads us to worship, but we can't rush past this. There is nothing more practical in seasons of pressure and sorrow than the worship of God. Worship changes us because we were made to worship. Peter is writing, we saw this last week, to provide to these churches grace and peace. Man, if we could have grace and peace in our world right now, wouldn't that fix a lot? We're not any different than they were. But it is... uh, For Peter to think that he could provide for us grace and peace without leading us to worship is to think that you might be able to help a chef who's kind of in a slump by filling his freezer full of microwave meals. It might help for a little bit, maybe keep him fed. But ultimately, the chef's got to learn to cook. Why? Because that's what he was made to do. So too, when things are hard, the Christian must learn to worship. And he knows how prone we are when things begin to press to think outside of the categories of worship. But what he does here is he hits slow motion in 1 Peter 1 and begins to slow walk through the gospel that we might see how it produces worship inside of us. And through that worship, we will live differently. We will be compelled. We will love him all the more. And He begins to slow walk through this, and we see this beginning in verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's answering why. Why is he blessed? Why should we praise him? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Has anyone here watched Antique Roadshow? Do any of you have aunts? If you have aunts and they've ever had a TV on, they're watching the Antique Roadshow. And if you don't know what the Antique Roadshow is, it's basically American Idol before American Idol. People would go up to their attic, they'd find pieces of junk, they'd stand in line for a long period of time, and then someone would look at their antique and give it a value and everyone would be happy or crushed, depending upon your item. And the highest I went and looked, the highest uh, valued item that came in, came in 2008. Someone presented uh, a statue that went on to sell at auction for over two and a half million dollars. If any of you have that statue, we have a building fund. The number's right around two and a half million dollars. We'd love to have that. And the reason why these shows are captivating is because we gawk at hidden value like that. And here Peter is going, if you are a believer... Peter's going into the attic of your heart and he's pulling out this gospel which you claim to have believed at one point and he's saying, look at its value. Do you understand what that cloth had been covering for the whole of your life? And he begins to show the value of this by calling us to consider first the nature of the gospel. And the nature of the gospel is this, mercy. That's what we saw in verse three. According to God's great mercy mercy gospel starts with God the gospel starts with God in his mercy if the gospel started with us or with our response to God it would not be compelling it would not be wonderful because I know myself I'm not very special but the gospel starts with God and his mercy towards us if the gospel highlights our work we will always fail to be captivated by it we will always think Toledo is the better option But in God's glory, the gospel doesn't start with man's might, but God's mercy. God is merciful towards a broken people because he's that kind of God. As part of the coronavirus shutdowns, the NBA has suspended its regular season, which has left the hourly stadium workers who work in those stadiums without a job for the indefinite future. And what's happening, which uh, is is cool to see, is owners and players are gathering together for select teams, and they are pooling money to pay these hourly workers for the games that they're going to miss. Do you think that when those employees get their next paycheck, it's going to have a unique effect on them? Because in the past, they got paychecks and no one opened up their paycheck and dropped to their knees and said, thank you so much, employer. At best, we're excited. And at worst, we say, is this all I'm worth to you? Shouldn't I be making more? But when they get this paycheck, they are going to realize they did nothing for it. Their time card shows exactly what they deserve. Nothing. And yet, despite what they deserve, They are getting what they didn't deserve. That's mercy. As Christians, we don't deserve nothing. Our time card doesn't just show zero. Our time card shows decades of embezzlement. Our sins deserve death. We deserve eternal judgment, separation from God. But God is going to act towards sinners in the gospel, not according to what they deserve, but according to his great mercy. So again, to think that we had anything to do with our salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ means that Jesus will never be of comfort to us. If you don't find Jesus and his mercy as comforting to you, it's probably because you think you had more to do with your salvation than you actually did. Because when things begin to press in on us and God feels distant towards us, if we don't think primarily that God came to us in mercy, we're going to think that we have to do things to get God to come into our mess. We have to do penance, we have to do works, we have to do all these rituals. But in mercy, God reminds us, even when it seems the world is pressing in on us, that Jesus has already drawn near to our mess. Because God is a God of mercy. And why is this good news? What does this mercy look like? Well, one sense it relieved the burden of sin. It removed God's eternal judgment, but considered the effect of the gospel that Peter focuses on. The effect of the gospel is conversion. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul reminds us again in In uh, Romans that the wages of our sin what we worked hard to get was death but here those who have received mercy are dripping with new life if we're studying our Bible we want to look for words that are thematically grouped and we're circling a bunch of words here because in contrast to death this text rings with life doesn't it born again to a living hope of a resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead because Jesus rose, we have new life. We have living hope. We have been born again. Now, in America, the word born again Christian, born again believer has with it specific cultural baggage. And we often use that term as the benchmark of Christianity. And it certainly is a benchmark of Christianity. Jesus himself says that unless man has been born again, you will not be saved. It says that to Nicodemus. But we often communicate the idea of being born again as a believer as not the beginning of our Christian walk, but the end of it, right? To have been born again is to check off the only box we ever need to check off, and now we can go back to living life how we want to live life. We have our Costco membership card. We've been born again. Now tell me how to manage my family, my finances, and my fun. But to view conversion, to view Christianity through the lens of a one-time thing, which has no implications on what comes next, is to miss the metaphor that God uses. People are born to live. They're born to grow. They're born to walk, to run, to work. We all know times in our life where either our sins or our trials have been enslaving or defining. For me, when I began to get anxious, this is something my wife and I processed in our pre-marriage, when I get anxiety, I was prone, I was hardwired in sin to go to pornography to give me a sense of control. And you probably have something, when a certain fear, when a certain pressure is applied, that you know something has a hold on your life. And if we don't understand conversion, you'll never have hope in those moments. Because as soon as those fears begin to press, we're going to run to what we've always pressed towards. But here, Peter is saying, no, you've been born again. You have a living hope. You really can change. You really can say no. You really don't have to go back. You really are defined by something more beautiful. We've been born again. We've been made new. There's hope. I'm sure you've seen, this is like TV movie hour with Tyler, the movie Groundhog Day, where Bill Murray is forced to relive Groundhog Day over and over and over again. And each morning, he's, he's literally born anew. He's born again. And all the consequences of what he did the day before have just been erased, and it's a rerun. And this tracks wonderfully uh, something that relates to our Christianity. Because for the first little bit, He gets, like Romans 8.1, for there is now therefore no condemnation in Jesus Christ. And he's just like, this is awesome. I can do whatever I want. I can eat whatever I want. I can be as sleazy as I want. And there are no consequences. But soon, it begins to tire. He begins to feel trapped. He begins to loathe his inability to move forward. You see, most of us are unamazed at our conversion because our understanding of the Christian life stops at the removal of sin, stops at no condemnation, but fails to actually move on to the next day. But this is the living hope of resurrected life that Jesus gives us. Conversion not only changes us, not only removes the condemnation of sin by God's great mercy, but it pulls us forward into new lives, new days, new hopes, new encounters, new patterns, new loves. It gives us the ability to live differently. The desired effect of Jesus' work is that we would be made new. And that helps us encounter same things in different ways. And lastly, Peter calls us to consider not only the nature, not only the effect, but the reward of the gospel. And the reward of this gospel is a future inheritance. We've been made new now, but there's something better yet to come. In mercy, he calls us to, beginning in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And this idea of future inheritance is actually going to shape uh, what Peter's going to talk about in the remainder of our text today. In the, the gospel, we have an inheritance, he says, which is unrivaled by worldly standards. If you turn on the TV right now, you are going to see panic about the value of the world's economy. What's the stock market going to do? What are consumer prices going to do? What's my retirement going to do? And here he says, here is this inheritance that is of wonderful value, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it can't be touched. How safe is it? It is held in heaven. In the storehouses of the divine Fort Knox, nothing can touch this inheritance. Your future is secure. It's kept in heaven for you. In other words, both Peter and Paul are saying that there is a wonderful gift for us in our salvation, but to reach it, to get there, we must endure in faith. Faith guards us the end is what he says. Faith, don't be surprised when faith is tested because guards take a beating at times. Shields get hit. They get struck. Don't be surprised when that happens. And the wonderful truth is, is that even when you and your faith begin to feel that the world is waging war on it, it is not only your faith in Jesus Christ, but Peter says it is being guarded by the power of God. You are not alone to endure by the wit of your might or the might of your wit, whatever that works. God is helping you in faith. God is helping you cling to Jesus, but he makes it very clear that there is a problem here. And that problem is it's still in the future, that wonderful, beautiful inheritance. It is in heaven stored up for the last day, meaning your faith has to figure out how to get from here to there. And we don't know how much ground is between that, And we don't know the trials that will come. And we don't know how the guard will be beaten. And we don't know what experiences will come our way. But we need to be reminded of this, Peter says. That for the Christian, make no mistake. Your reward is in the future. And if you forget that, then what you're really believing is that God has placed his reward in something which is not Jesus. And that's to think idolatrously. To think that God doesn't actually hold out for us the promise of an inheritance in our salvation in heaven means that you're actually looking for salvation here on earth. And in light of this, Peter tells us how we can have faith that's fixated on the right things. Verses 6 through 12. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him though you do not now see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls concerning this salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours so he's talking about the old testament prophets so when we were at in Deuteronomy think of that and the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ In them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news, the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. When we understand the nature of our salvation by mercy, the effect of our salvation, that we are converted, and the reward of our salvation, there is something wonderful laid up for us in heaven. You are presented with two choices in the midst of trial stop loving him or love him a whole lot more. And this is what Peter is defining for us in this last portion. This is the application. In light of this wonderful gospel, what does he call us to do? He calls us to joyfully endure that God's people would be typified in the midst of hardships, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of confusion by a joyful endurance. If you notice in this text which describes testing by fire, trials, grief, suffering, Peter calls people to be joyful twice. And not just joyful, to be inexpressibly joyful. Now, we need to be careful here because Peter is not calling us to minimize suffering. Christians shouldn't minimize suffering because to minimize suffering, to minimize the pain in this world is to actually minimize what Jesus came to redeem us from. Suffering, pain, sin, hurt, trial, all of those things are painful. All of those things exist because sin exists. All of those things will one day be taken away in the person and work of Jesus. So Peter isn't calling us, I want you to hear this because there's an important distinction here. He's not calling us to find joy in our trial as if the trial is good. He's calling us to find joy in the divinely appointed result of the trial. What is it the trial produces? Oh, and that's important because I want you to hear. It's okay to be hurting. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to feel wounded. But in the midst of that experience, God is promising to produce in you a result. Look at this, verses six through nine. In this you rejoice, Though Now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a picture of the second coming. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what is the outcome of our trials? What is it meant to produce in us? Joy when Jesus comes back. It's meant to get us to the finish line. Our faith is meant to get us to the point where our faith finally becomes sight, we reach the end intact, and we get the outcome of our faith, the salvation of your souls. It is true that when you first believed, you are saved. It is true that when you believe right now, you are saved. But to be saved finally and eternally is to get to the end and receive the salvation of your faith. And to make this illustration, this purity that's required in our faith, uh, Peter uses the uh, the illustration of refining gold. Gold is a mineral that in its natural form isn't very valuable because it's always mixed with other minerals and metals. And so to make gold golden, what they would do kind of back in the days of Peter is they would take this conglomerate of of partly gold, partly other things, and they'd stick it in a kiln, in an oven, and it would sit there for five days. And it would melt off the gold for purity and they would throw away what's impure. And just this week I looked at the modern gold refining process and it pretty much takes what would have been left of the gold after being in an oven for five days from Peter's time. And they take that raw gold and they wash it up to four times in four different chemical baths, each meant to remove a specific element from it. And then they put that lump into a crucible and heat it to 1,400 degrees. And they pour it out. They take that substance when it's cooled, and they wash it with chlorine, and they take that after it's been washed, back into the crucible, melted at 100 or 1,400 degrees again, and then it's dried and it turns into a type of flake. It looks like gold cornflakes. Then they chemically wash that cornflake again, so that the gold itself breaks down into just sand. It's just sand. And they take that sand and they put it back into the crucible at 400 degrees. They melt it again for a fourth time. And then they pour it out and it becomes pellets or grains. And then these grains are 99.9% pure gold. And from this point, they could take those grains and they could either melt it again or they could shape it into whatever it is that they want to make. All of that work, washings and washings and meltings and meltings to get almost pure gold. You know God what God's process is called to make us 100% pure in faith? Life. The life we live is a kiln which God has given to refine our faith for our good. And Peter gives a wonderfully odd hypothetical here. I don't know if you're like me, but I like looking for loopholes in scripture, and I found one here. He says this, he says, in this you rejoice. I'm like, That's great, let's do it. Though now... For a little while, don't like the though, where's this going? If necessary, okay, go on. You have been grieved by various trials. I don't know what your relationship is with suffering, don't know how much you've suffered in life, but if I'm given the option of if necessary, I'm gonna say, not necessary, I get it, I get, I get, I, I see it, I want the joy, I want the glory, I want the honor, I want the praise, I want the outcome, and I'll be fine. They need it. They need the kiln. I'm good. I don't need to suffer like this. I feel pretty strongly. I can make it on my own. But this is a hypothetical that's not actually hypothetical, is it? The point is we all need this. Why? Why do we need these seasons in our life? Because on this earth, our faith and our hope can become so intermixed with things that it's hard to discern what true faith and true value looks like. But just like the process of refinement, suffering separates what's rubbish from what's of value so that we might rejoice in what endures. In other words, the trials of this life, by God's grace, listen to this, Are meant to keep you safe. You know why daredevils, why inventors always do smaller scale test runs? Because they want to know what will break when it's small, so then when it's big, it doesn't kill them. They understand that in a test run, they might get hurt, but they're not going to die. This life is designed to cause you to break legs, to get rashes and to figure out that will never work. So that one day when standing before Jesus, you will not die. Because in that moment you will realize that what you once cling to was no gold at all. But in the process of life, in the dashing of idols, in the squeezing of hope, you realize that there is one object of lasting value, faith in Jesus Christ. The refinement process The chaos going on in our hearts and outside these walls in our city and in our nation is meant to show us of a value that cannot get sick and is not in flux like our economy. My children, uh, my two oldest, share a room and they've got bunk beds. And because my wife and I are geniuses in parenting, uh, they also sleep in the playroom because we want to limit distractions. And so at night, what happens generally is they find some toy Uh, They mutually agree upon that toy to both like at the same time. And so most nights, it's this process of finding, like, the the middle ground of who gets this toy. In that moment, you will think that nothing else in this world matters except for this stuffed animal. And there are tears, and there are groaning, and there are, I have never had, like, we hear the groaning of those who say, if necessary, please don't make me suffer like this. And then at some point, we we cut the toy in half like Solomon, and we give, no uh, one of them gets the toy, And we go to bed, but what's interesting is if there's a storm outside or if they have a bad dream, they might cling to the toy for a little bit. But if the storm continues and the dream persists, the toy means nothing to them. And what do they do? They come to our room. Because despite the affection they had four hours before fighting over this silly thing, it now seems so small in the context of the safety that a real mom and dad can bring to them. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, if you place a Christian in trouble, you will find that he does not want gold then. Then he wants his God. When he sails along smoothly, he loves to have fair weather And he wants this and that to amuse himself with on deck. But when the winds blow, all he wants is the haven. He does not desire anything else. The bread may be moldy, but he does not care. The water may be brackish, but he does not care. He does not think of it in the storm. He only thinks of the haven. Brothers and sisters, the storms of this life make us long for Christ, our haven. Our haven where our sins have been defeated. The only thing that really defines us has been redefined by the person and work of Jesus Christ. These storms come so that we might see his inestimable beauty. Now you might think, that's really vain. Why would God cause me to experience this? That I would love him? What kind of God is this? But this is according to God's great mercy. This is according to his great love. For Jesus is not a novelty to entertain us on the deck of a sinking ship. Jesus is not a parent to be clung to. Jesus is salvation himself. There is salvation in no other name by which men will be saved. And in fact, it's exactly the weight of the trials of this life which allow us by grace to love the Jesus we cannot see and in so doing experience the comfort that the world cannot provide. And that's why Peter brings in the prophets of the Old Testament at the end. He said, they long to see what you have. You have what everyone wanted to see the thing which angels long to look, the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, it is captivating if only you would see Jesus. If only you would long for all things to reach the outcome of your faith. And so the question this text is meant to offer us is this. Do you long for what this text longs for us? longs for. Whether you lived a thousand years ago as an Israelite, we lived in the more recent history as a Jewish or a Gentile believer in the early church, or whether you live now, Peter is making it clear, this is what captivates. This is what dictates our course of action. Look again at verses eight through nine. What is the picture Peter wants us to see? Though you have not seen him, You love Him. The darkest storms reveal to us the Jesus we cannot see. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you realize that one day those who endure in faith will not just be saved, they will see Jesus It seems so foreign because we cannot see him now, can we? But praise God, he gives us suffering that we might long for him. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, you will be disappointed in this world you will experience suffering and fear in this world. You will wrestle with your affection for Jesus in this world. But if you believe That's what he's saying. If you believe in him, it leads to rejoicing in him with joy in him because we know that it is not our emotion, it is not our ability to feel joy, but in the object of our faith, that Jesus Christ, that we will make it, that he will be radiant and that we will be satisfied. You see, there are countless pages we could write right now you take a snapshot of what's in our world, and we could write pages upon pages, upon pages, upon pages, of the things that we know will go away in heaven. Of all the things that hurt us, of all the things that burden us, we could fill a library. I could, from my life. you could, from your life. And what I love about the book of Revelation is when John opens back the curtain to the throne room of God, you know how much time he spends telling us what will be absent. One verse. God will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4. The entire weight that burdens us, the entire trials that Peter's defining, put away in a sentence. And Peter spends the re- or John spends the rest of his book not telling us what isn't there, but what is. When we get to heaven, we will see Jesus. And we will be captivated. Do you long for that? Do you really believe that? My grandparents were both members at this church. And my grandpa led worship here for a long time. He died uh, around eight years ago now. My grandma just died in the the past few months. And she died after a long battle with dementia and Alzheimer's. And I remember going there and I remember seeing her. Last time I talked to her, uh, she was just kind of blankly staring. I read Psalm 23 with her. I prayed with her. I remember that I, I just started crying. Because I was thinking of that moment. So many of us have a wrong view of heaven. And it will never convince us to stay. But this picture of heaven, do you understand it? Because I thought, you think how you normally think, oh, man, how great it's going to be to see her husband. He was married to what, 65 years? But I can tell you this. If she does happen to see my grandfather in heaven, <laughs> there's not going to be a sentimental embrace. Because after all my grandma has endured, grandpa will see her and he will take her to the feet of his savior and he will say, isn't he wonderful? Hasn't he made everything worth it? Don't you have what you always wanted? Brothers and sisters, to have a picture of glory like this is not something the world can yell you into. It is something that only the love of Jesus can fix in our heart. And may it be that you would be so compelled by this gospel that you will say, Lord, whatever it takes, get me there. However long the kiln, it's worth it that I might see my Savior I might say it was worth loving you all the more. May God give us the grace to see a picture of Jesus so compelling that it causes us to act differently in seasons of hardship. May we all take this path to glory guarded by faith in the power of God for glory joy. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we pray that in the midst of the trials of this life, we will welcome the testing of our faith. We will rejoice not in the testing, but at the result of it. That we might say when all is said and done and we see Jesus face to face, it is worth it. That my soul needs no other. Because I have received the outcome of my faith. The salvation of my soul. I pray this in your name. Amen.